0: Welcome to A Longer Table Podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. You guys are in for a treat. I have my friend Kim Crowder on the podcast today. She is a singer, a speaker. She's a social justice advocate. She's an entrepreneur. She's just incredible. I mean, you're you're such a big deal, Kim, that I know that did not do you justice, but people are going to get to know you as you talk. They're going to fall in love with you, and then they can go find out more about you for themselves. So welcome to A Longer Table Podcast. Thank you. I
1: am very excited to talk to you again.
0: I know. I, it was so fun doing the Instagram live with you a few months ago when we were in the thick of, um, I think it was shortly after Ahmad Arbery or George Floyd, I don't remember, but it was, um, at a point where everything with the black lives matter movement kind of spiked again because of incidents that occurred. And I wanted to hand the mic over to women like you, who I believe are oftentimes overlooked and oppressed. And, um, that's one way that I felt as a white woman with privilege, I could, um, help not only myself, but my fellow white brothers and sisters by giving uh, people like you a place for your voice to be heard. And I think your voice has so much to offer. Your perspective is incredible. And so we're just going to dive right in if that's cool. Let's do it. I'm with it. I want to know if you believe that your passion for social justice is a part of how God wired you, or do you think it's the result of being a black woman in America? Because I know, you're, yeah, so, I know you're a woman of faith, so I guess I, I'd be curious to know, like, do you think that's nature or nurture? Is it both? Is it because it's how God wired you, or is it because of your experience as a black woman?
1: Sure. Uh, so here's what I'll say is that not every person of color is an activist, right? Just like not every woman is an activist. Yep. Uh, just like everybody who's LGBTQIA plus isn't an activist, so I won't say that that it is because I am a black woman that I am very much so dialed into social justice. I will say that it is how God created me, and then having the added benefit, and I call it a benefit of being born as a black woman, or you know, a, a black child, and then becoming a woman, that has informed my learning, right? That has informed my experiences, but it also has made me sensitive to other folks as well who are not necessarily Black. And I want to really make sure that as we have this conversation, that we are thinking about all of this intersectionality. uh, Because I think the more we move away from this idea that this is just a Black and white thing, the more that we can really expand the conversation And even for those of us who identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of color, that we find our space to be allies for other folks, and I like to say co-conspirators, that we find accomplices, that we find our space to support other folks, because there is absolutely room for that as well.
0: Yeah, that's such a good reminder, and I love that you're starting the conversation there. And I will also just add that what you said is so true that it's that not every black person is an activist in this, just like not every woman is. That's so true. That's why when I had a friend of mine, David on the podcast, not that long ago, he's a black man. We didn't spend much time talking about, um, his blackness. I mean, it comes up because it's a beautiful part of him, but that's, that wasn't the focus of our conversation. We talked more about him being an actor and just like his life in other areas. And, We also need to, I want to say this as a white person who's still and will always be learning. We, as white people, so those of you who are look like me that are listening, need to not expect every black person we encounter or we are in relationship with to be our teacher, like number one, but also that while I'm sure they care very much about dismantling racism and all this other stuff that Kim and I are going to chat about, that everybody's approach to it is different. And that just because they're black doesn't mean that they have to be a leader in that space. So, right. I, and I know Kim agrees with that. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you kicked us off there. I love learning from you. Um, let's also start with, if you don't mind share a little bit about what your experience has been, um, growing up as a black child and then the evolution of, uh, you today as a black woman, Um, specifically when it comes to racism, has that, did you notice it increase as you got older? What, what's your experience? Just tell me a little bit about it.
1: Sure. So let me give you some background about who I am or, or how I grew up. So we lived in Korea as kids. So I lived in another country. Uh, at a time where, this is the 80s, and so it is not a time where you see a ton of Black people in Korea, but the beautiful pieces of that were, it was more people's curiosity and less people showing up with a bias around it. And so I really didn't, that, being in that environment and playing with children who didn't speak my same language, who didn't look like me, whose cultures were different and still having that beautiful relationship, even without being able to communicate verbally with each other. The innocence of that is what I have continued to try to take with me over the years. And so in that, I didn't really feel like I experienced uh, the, the, the challenge of I don't even want to call it a challenge that's, you know, I'm just trying to figure out the right word to use there, but I didn't really, my eyes weren't really open. I'll just say that to the, the issues of racism until I was in America for much longer. Uh, But I will say this, even as a young child, I do remember having thoughts about, I wonder what my life would be like if I were a little white girl,
0: Hmm.
1: Um, you know, because we're talking about the options for toys we're talking about reading materials. We still have a large deficit. My background is I've worked in library systems uh, and understanding the publishing world, like that the chasm uh, between stories that are told not only about people of color, not only as girls as the protagonists, but written by those folks, right? Because we are finding that the the books even about uh, children of color. Are not always even written, or books about people of color are not even written by people of color. So even having that, you know, that understanding there, that it just there just weren't a lot of options. You know, uh, Spider Woman, I loved Spider Woman, but Spider Woman was a white woman, and so not having a lot of opportunity to see myself. In ways that uh, are really could have been really beneficial, I think we're challenging. You know, you start to move as you get a little older, and the Cosby show shows up, so did a different world. There's even when you think about a different world, especially that first few years, that uh, it, uh, if I'm not mistaken, enrollment in historically black colleges and universities increased because of that rep- representation. And so I'll just say, growing up, uh, have, and then, you know, you remember as a child, your first time being called the N-word. So there's all of these experiences that shape am. but I also grew up in Houston, Texas, which is, if people don't know, the most diverse city in this country. And so it, it, a ton of immigrant population. So I have all of this beautiful mixture that come, you know, is making this beautiful soup that then contributed to who I have become now. Yeah yeah I love that you gave that context, and I'm
0: curious, were you a military kid, or why were you guys in Korea and then in Houston and wherever else you lived growing up what What was the reason for that?
1: yeah my family is from Houston from Houston and Dallas between Houston and Dallas. my mom's family is still there in Houston. I still have a deep love of Houston, Texas. Um I think if you know anybody from Houston, Texas, we are absolutely obnoxious about being from Houston, uh, but also as far as why we were overseas is because my dad Worked for the military. So he is an engineer. He was not, uh, he's a civilian. And so that was just where the job called us to be. Uh, and we weren't there extremely long, but just getting outside of that early, getting outside of what is considered your normal worldview, I mean, literally, it expanded the possibilities for me as to where I could live. And to where I could visit. And so now travel is a deep passion of mine. Culture is a deep passion of mine. I feel like that started and was sparked by my parents being brave to try something different and live somewhere else that was a completely, you know, unexpected, probably for the people around them.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. And I think... I mean, any of us who have done, um, any type of living overseas, even if it's a couple of weeks for a semester abroad or, or whatever the case is, like it changes you. Um, it helps open your view of the world. It helps you realize, um, learn so much about other cultures and realize that there's not necessarily one right way to live or do certain things or be in the world. And I think that shows up now in who you are as a person, Kim. So I think that's really such a gift actually that you received. Um, I, also want to touch on your faith. Like I'm curious if you identify as a Christ follower or what you would say you identify as when it comes to your faith or your spiritual life. And did you grow up in the church?
1: I did. I grew up in the church. I consider myself uh, a Christ follower, but I don't call myself religious. And there's a reason for that, because I think that we have, especially in this country in particular, or I say especially, but specifically in this country, we have very much shaped Christianity in a way that has become exclusion, you know, a way to exclude people. uh, And also in the way that has become performative instead of relational. And I'm not, so this is, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everyone operates this way. I'm not saying every church operates this way. I am saying that, you know, it's almost kind of like this blanket that is (laughs) maybe, uh, you know, kind of our fog that sits above when we start talking about Christianity, this kind of fog around the way that we explore what Christianity is and very much so deciding uh, what that, who gets entrance. Into being called a Christian or a good Christian or even a mature Christian, right? We love to use words like baby and maturity and all of that is very much so separative. And it's also extremely um, presumptuous about who we are and who we get to be within the church environment or certainly within our faith.
0: Yeah. I I agree with you. I don't really identify as religious. I'm constantly trying to make sure that's differentiated to my online audience, um, that I believe in a relationship with Jesus. I am not a religious person that that's not something I identify with either. And, and I, I asked those questions. I wanted people to get to know you a little bit as a woman, as a black woman, uh, a little bit about your faith because of where we're going with this conversation. We are going to get into, um, the good stuff uh, that makes me squirm in my seat a little bit, right? Because it's it's sometimes hard and uncomfortable, and people get defensive. But I want to ask everyone: put their, you know, take a deep breath, put your defenses aside. And I want to ask you first, Kim, as we dive into this when when have you witnessed or experienced firsthand racism and discrimination masked as Christianity?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a quite a few ways, and so I'll I want to talk in a couple ways as we as we look at this. So I'll talk about what that has meant for me personally, and then I'll talk about some ways that I've seen that um, in a broader scope. So personally, I, it, it, <laughs> it has been a really interesting time in this country, right? Uh, as we think about the fact that a lot of we're in a time where we are being forced to get rid of a lot of distraction. And what I mean by that is it, we can't, we can't necessarily pick up and go as we used to. Um, Where a lot of people I think are reshaping and reevaluating what they want their lives to be. And so also it gives space for things like challenges around being black in America, or being a person of color in general, being indigenous in America, or native uh, native identifying as native in America, it starts to it has started to give space for that, right, um, in ways that may not have happened, if people were in and out of, you know, their houses and that sort of thing. And so I say that to say, and I'm 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 I, I will just be very honest. I'm struggling about whether or not how much of this to talk about, and maybe not necessarily bring in politics, but bring in the ideas around political parties and the way that we have operated, especially as Christianity. That that extreme flux, I feel like, about associating faith with a political party, which is dangerous, in my opinion. Very, I agree. Yeah. And so as we do that, one of the issues that continuously shows up, you know, on both sides is abortion. That continues, particularly when you start talking about the church, that almost has become the leaning forward, whether or not I'm going to vote or even consider thinking about the impact of the other things, the other issues that may be happening that I've whether or not I'm tuned into those or not, but abortion has become such a large conversation. But here's what has not happened. We don't talk about the systemic pieces of this and, you know, what is connected to this topic of abortion. We don't often talk about what this has meant in a person's life as a human being. We talk about it as a concept. Right. And so here's what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about empathy. But also I'll talk about, uh, you know, for me, how I've experienced firsthand is the inability or lack of willingness to regularly discuss race in church. Um, I have maybe said things about race or being a woman in, in open rooms and. You get crossed over. People don't want to talk about that. Um, we also, you know, I've, I remember having an experience. So I'm a, I'm a singer and uh, in a church in particular. And, and I talk about this one church, but I, this has happened in more than one case where, you know, you're taught to sing tastefully. And what does tastefully mean? It means it, it's connected to runs a lot of times. Like you know, when people talk about runs, it's um, you know when somebody draws out a note and does some kind of gymnastics <laughs> around that. But using this term tastefully, what that really means, and the type of music that is even considered worship music, right? Contemporary Christian music, mm. and how that is brought into churches that are diverse, and that portion of it, you know, we never watching worship services change or grow to include the folks who are showing up who weren't there 10, five years ago, but watching uh, our churches not involve themselves in the cultural shifts that need to happen or really think about inclusion. Because we talk about diversity sometimes, but we don't talk about inclusion, right? Yes, yeah. This is, you know, this is a pro tip, like what we're talking about inclusion. And what that means is, is when people show up, what happens? Not just can you get them in the door, but then what happens? Do we, are we now thinking about, you know, how are we operate? How do we need to operate differently? Are there? How do we make sure we're amplifying voices and including those folks in conversations around our church processes, around the way that we serve the communities now? Right, and 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 moving away from white saviorism. Uh, you know, I remember being being in a church where they were talking about giving toys for Christmas, and it was they were showing a video, and it was white people who were in these communities and neighborhoods, but they was they were all black children. It was uh, the only people in need were the black kids. And that is such a dangerous message. It is such a dangerous message because it shapes this idea that whoever shows up who looks like those children is just a little, little bit below, just a little bit below. And
0: I want to say one thing I, I love where you're going. So I don't want to interrupt for too long, but I want to say too, that when we, When we, uh, uh, when there is some truth to it, like somebody might say to play devil's advocate, somebody might say, well, that's, those are the kids that have the need and we just want to serve those kids, you know, and they, they are trying to do it from a good heart. I get that. However, if there is some truth to that, and those are the kids who have less and they all happen to have brown or black skin. Why is that? Why is it that it's only Brown and black? Okay. So let's take it a step further. It's like, we never take the time to get to the root. And if we would go to the root all the way, it's systematic racism. It's so right. And 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 like, ah, it's like of all people who should care about that Christians, we should be at the top of the list. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. I just wanted to interject and say that because I do know well-intentioned, good-hearted white people will say but that is the, they, they have the need. Okay. Yes. But why is that? And let's, can we not reconcile that or resolve that or figure out a way to dismantle systems that keep it that way?
1: Right. But also what that does is it creates this lack of seeing white children who also need that kind of support Preach. or white people. If we continue to think about support, only as a means of monetary and financial giving, then we miss out on the things that could very well be going on in households. We, we, we are not talking about mental trauma. We are not talking about sexual trauma. Um, we know that white men commit suicide at an extremely higher rate than other races. There's a reason for that that's not a coincidence. White men commit mass murders. White men are more susceptible to being serial killers. And so we, do you, under, you understand what yes, I'm getting at? So, absolutely. Because what it does is it creates this imbalance of looking at issues that may be beneath the surface and instead continues to perpetuate this idea that there's one group or a few groups of people who, are, who need us most.
0: Yep. Totally. Yeah, I see exactly where you're going with it. I'm with you. Where do you see, uh, just to take it a step further, hate and patriarchy and white supremacy in the church? So we've talked a little bit about racism and discrimination masked as Christianity. Where have you seen, where do we still see and I'm not just talking about the local church. I'm talking about the big C church, churches all across America. Mm-hmm.
1: Where mm-hmm. do we see mm-hmm. hate and
0: patriarchy and white supremacy? I mean, I think some of a, almost all of us having tuning in right now, probably have a few uh, things coming to mind, but I want to hear from you.
1: Yeah, I, what one of the things and here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this from a perspective of my own past bias. My own stuff that I'm still working through Um, has been so I I am not, you know, some oracle. I'm not the golden answer, but these are things that I have seen. Um, I want to talk about one thing around women preachers and church leaders Um, how, when we see women put into positions of leadership, particularly if she is to lead a church, that there is a sense of her not being able to be trusted, particularly if she isn't married, right? And we also do that to men too. If they aren't married, something suspicious because of the way that we have shaped this idea of marriage being this ultimate goal, but also that marriage in some way elevates you to a place of wisdom and understanding. That if God has called you to be single, you can't get.
0: Mm, I mean, that's ridiculous.
1: Amen. Right? Yes, it is. Um, and then also being discriminatory, being discriminatory around LGBTQIA plus issues and populations um, around whether or not they were born as they are uh, and that God created them as they are, making assumptions about people and their gender. And our goal isn't to decide whether or, or shouldn't be, in my opinion, whether to decide people are doing what we think they should do. We are called to love above all, right? And we know that. we, we 1 Corinthians 13 tells you this, right? Uh, so, if we are operating in that place, we should also be operating in an as a, as empathy driven as Christians. We should always be thinking about uh, the power and the the act of revolution of putting ourselves in other people's shoes, because even if you may not necessarily come to a final decision um, based on the, you know being empathetic of someone else you at least have thought through the process of what it could be like to walk in their shoes. But that's education. And so I think one of the ways that I have seen um, hate really show itself is the lack of willingness to listen to others, (coughs) lack of curiosity, but also the lack of being willing to learn. Because, you know, sometimes we can make decisions about what we believe spiritually, but ignore history completely ignore history, completely be devoid of the understanding of how we got to certain places as if Jesus wrote the Bible in a vacuum. Hmm. It's just not, I mean, our Jesus provided you know, inspiration or our Holy Spirit provided in, inspiration for the Bible in a vacuum. When we look at Jesus's life and who the disciples were and who he spoke with along the way, we know that his goal was inclusion, period. Yep. It just was. Um, which is why, God, you know, chose to have him die alongside thieves and alongside sinners, right? So how do we find that in ourselves to be uh, more open about all of the ways that people are subjugated to pain um, and instead stop making decisions and saying full stop, As I understand the Bible, that is the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even being in the church, questioning my own blackness on a regular basis, you know, seeing white Jesus on a regular basis. When we know historically that Jesus did not look like what we've seen. It's just not true. Um, Characterizing mental illness is demon driven. Right as, as they must have a demon in some way. Mental illness is very real um, and choosing not to address it or outcasting people, using it as a tool to outcast folks. So how do we what I'm getting at is how do churches begin to pivot, frankly, in these environments and be more inclusive because that's what we're called to do, especially frankly, as the way that churches are able to reach folks has changed. We talk about what's happening with COVID. And now maybe you don't even get to see people one-on-one anymore, right? And so you have to figure out how do you connect with people virtually in a way that they still feel like they belong within your congregation? Who's making the regular decisions um, outside of the music ministry, where we typically find that's where the diversity happens, right? Let's quarantine it off to the music, right? So we can get a backbeat. But who's making decisions about financially where that money goes and who that money supports Who's making decisions around sermons and what the messaging is? What the strategic plan? You know, what is the strategic plan for the church overall in general? As far as what, are, what is going to be the main focus for the years? They start doing an annual planning. Who's in the room to help provide some rebounding around what that looks like?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so good. I didn't know you were going to take us to church, and I'm I'm here for it.
1: I, I love it. <laughs>
0: I, I think this will be especially interesting for anyone listening who works in a church or who is a pastor, um, just because of the, the way I pose the question. Um, but even outside of, uh, the church are we as individuals who, who are following Christ have a responsibility when it comes to the dismantling of hate and patriarchy and white supremacy and racism and all of that, um, in the world in general, Uh, what would you say are some things that you think will, maybe if you have any tangible things that you can give us, some tangible nuggets to hold on to, whether we're black or we're white or we're brown or whatever, um, to do our part to dismantle these things in our Christian communities and the world at large?
1: Sure. The first thing is learn. Do a bunch of learning. Start, you know, take a look at, you know, maybe your last two books that you read, the last two movies you saw, the last. Uh, Two songs you listen to and see if there's a common ground there. Are you only listening and and learning from people like you? And that's hard just to be, I mean, maybe I shouldn't even use the word hard. That takes intention is what it does. It takes intention to get outside of your circle, um, to maybe get outside of your neighborhood and to really look for ways to start connecting with communities that are unlike yours. Uh, But but first, really starting at that learning so that in those environments, you at least begin to gain the skill sets needed to connect. Because I wanna make sure that we talk about just showing up and trying to engage people who are different than you isn't good enough. Because you can create space where that person feels uncomfortable, but also where your bias leads. And so some of the things that you say in those conversations can be extremely damaging. If you haven't done some of that back work to learn, there are great books out there. How to be an anti-racist by Ibra Kendi is a really great one. Um, Austin Channing Brown has a beautiful book. Uh, I cannot remember the title. I'm still here. I'm, I'm still, still here. here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that one, especially when we talk about church environment is like the one People should really think about picking up and reading. Um, and so, again, not—I mean, reading some books by some native folks, reading some books about, or listening to a podcast about what's happening at the border in Mexico. Uh, this American Life has a really beautiful episode that won a Peabody Award. No, Pulitzer Prize. First, it's the first broadcast to ever win a Pulitzer Prize. Wow. And so finding ways to expand a code, uh, 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 code switch is another great podcast about race and different issues, 1619 project, like I could go on forever. Um, but the first, the first part, I would say is is learning is a big one. And then to practice that empathy, put yourself in someone else's shoes, use your imagination to figure out what that could really look like. Um, as, as as much as you can, because if for one, if we've never had to think about it, we, we have to come to grips with the fact that we don't we may not even know how to begin the empathy piece. But here's what you can do is if it were happening to me or somebody I loved, what would my reaction be? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about it uh, from that place, those are two things that I can think of off the top of my head. And the third one I'll say is this to stop running away from conversations in which people don't agree with you. Um, Because we often are, I have been, maybe I should say this, I have been so unsure about my own faith at times that I was unwilling to have a dialogue with someone who didn't agree with me exactly. Because I was afraid of the fact of, I was afraid of my own lack of understanding about where my faith came from. And so it really takes a, a level of introspection and being okay with digging in and saying, why am I afraid of this? What about this scares me the most? To start having dialogue or maybe to honor the fact that I may have privilege. Could that mean that maybe I didn't get to where I am only out of merit? And to grieve that, because there is a grieving process that we don't acknowledge, particularly for white people, certainly for white men, uh, to grieve some things around oh my gosh i've taken advantage and been a part of something and maybe i have even contributed to that in some ways and so honoring that that piece of that uh, in order to move this forward
0: yeah i love that you brought that up because it's so hard to do it's it's hard to acknowledge that maybe we've benefited from a system that oppresses other people, like that's really mm-hmm. sad and that's kind of dark. And I know when I it had, be, yeah, yeah, when I had that light bulb moment, like this is not like a boohoo, you know, little, um, sob vest for white people right now, but I just want to say as a white person, when I started having my light bulb moments, the only way to not become defensive was to just sit with it for a minute. And I haven't done it perfectly. I'm still not doing it perfectly, but but just uh, to to give it my best effort um, in being an ally and being someone that helps dismantle these things in the world, so that we can um, honestly <laughs> become more like Christ and see a world that's more Jesus like, for lack of better terms. Um, it's been really important to to yeah, grieve and hold space and just be like, okay maybe this wasn't my intention, but it's still harmful. And how can I do better? And kind of go from there. I also love that you pointed out the learning piece. Um, I feel like I have had to and continue to honestly go back to like fourth and fifth grade and relearn history, this time teaching myself um, things that, I wasn't taught. And so if people have any resources that they've found online, please pass them my way. Cause I am continuing to dig and do this. Um, but also to go back to another point that you said about what books you read and what music you listen to and the voices that you're, uh, giving your time to, and that you're willing to learn from for, for you to say, I love that you said, you know, it's not hard. It takes intention. Um, that's so true. I've had a lot of people say, Amanda, I want my life to be more diverse. And I feel like you have such a diverse life and friend group and all of this stuff. I want, I want that too. Um, it isn't that hard, but it does take intention. I have to think about things. I actually have to, Eric and I go out of our way as a couple to try to make more invitation towards people who don't look like us to come over for dinner. We have to go out of our way to say, okay, we've been hearing a lot about this movie, but this movie was written um, and produced by black people. And we want to constantly keep that in the forefront. So let's, you know, that's going to, we're going to tackle that one first. Like it's, it's definitely an intention. So I just wanted to add that what you said, I have found to be very true of my experience.
1: Sure. And we, and, and there are statistics around the fact that Um, Most white people don't even have one friend of color, uh, one real friend of color, particularly a black friend. And I also want to say this for those of us who identify as black indigenous or people of color, that even for us, we need to start thinking about in the same way, you know, how can I expand myself a bit? to start connecting with folks who are different than me and not seeing this only it only as a, a, a something that stops at skin tone right only that something that stops at the you know how do we start engaging people who think differently than we do as well so thinking about this in a in a broader sense uh, so that we i mean the goal is to grow and so finding in ourselves the humility and the and and sitting and being comfortable with the discomfort of growth, the growing pains, because it is you know there are growing pains. I also want to say this for as we we're talking about the shame and guilt that may show up as you are starting to delve into this. Brene Brown has a really beautiful uh, podcast episode on unlocking us. It's called Shame and Accountability, if I'm not mistaken, and so it's a great place to start. No one can explain shame and accountability like Brené Brown. Um and so <laughs> she offers some really beautiful nuggets uh, as you are uh, working through that piece of this.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I know Brené is like one of those wise people that you're just like if I could have dinner with you, like I would do anything oh my just gosh. To sit at a oh table and have dinner. Um well Kim, <laughs> I just want to thank you for your time and just your uh not only your like passion around all of this but your heart behind it all. You um the way that you communicate to me just shows your heart. Like you are so not out to condemn people. You truly no. want to make the world a better place. And, and you speak from that, um, that place. And so I just appreciate it so much. And I know that this uh, conversation I'm sure will um, challenge people, give them something to chew on. And then you gave us so many resources, which we will link in our show notes. So I just want to, yeah, thank you and um, continue to just say how much I Appreciate your voice and your perspective in my life, and um, if you ever find yourself in Chicago, you got to come over. So we got to make that happen. Post COVID, that will happen
1: for <laughs> sure, absolutely. Then I'll get to meet that beautiful baby. Yes, and yes. those sweet boys. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: my boys would love you. <laughs> they, they, they would absolutely love you. So, thank you so much for joining
1: a longer table today. Thank you for having me. It's, you know, it's always a pleasure, Amanda, and it is absolutely imperative that. Uh, people like you continue to use your platform for amplification it's extremely important and and uh, I appreciate being a part of that
0: yes absolutely thanks so much